Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino. And as is sometimes the case, today I'm also joined by my boss, FIRE President and CEO, Greg Lukianoff. Hi, Greg. Hi. How are you? You're in your new office. Yep. I got a window. It's kind of exciting. You had a window before. Oh, yeah, but this looks at things. <laughs> I mean, up in the world. Oh, I shouldn't say anything. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you can say anything. It was Greg's idea, Caitlin, to have you on the podcast. He's, uh, yeah, I know, I, always been an admirer. I'm a huge fanboy. Like, like I, I love her stuff. Oh. Um, you know, and and you and you're not you're amazingly unafraid of going into all sorts of controversial um, topics all over the all over the map. I, I, I mean, I, I admire your wit, uh, your style, and your bravery uh, as a journalist. Yeah, let me give the full bio here, and then I was I just can... about to say because my father very famously, and this was a Ber- he taught at Berkeley forever, and he um, gave this introduction to somebody. And it was just evidently my father was extremely funny. And it was just the greatest introduction. It was like 25 minutes long and nobody cared because it was so great. And then he, the speaker came up and he said, thank you so much, Tom. I have only two things to add to that. My name is Richard Elman and my subject is James Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a recent, uh, our podcast listeners might know, a recent podcast I had on Bob Corn Revere, who's a lawyer in the First Amendment community. And I... Just kind of, he's been on the podcast so many times. I just forgot to say that he was a lawyer with Davis Wright Tremaine. I was just like, oh, Bob Corn Revere, and he wrote a book. Right. Uh, but hopefully, most of our guests recall Bob from the pe- previous podcast. But you, Caitlin, you are a staff writer with The Atlantic. You're an author of two books, Girl Land and To Hell with All That. And your writing is wide ranging. I listened to you on Barry Weiss's podcast talking about abortion, I listened to you on Persuasion talking about free speech and many other things uh, in preparation for this. But we at FIRE have been interested in what you've been writing for many years now. Uh, You wrote about Title IX and due process, which is obviously an issue we work on. Uh, You also wrote about comedy in higher education. Oh, yes, yes, uh, yes. A little bit of background here. Greg and I worked on a movie with Ted Balaker called Can We Take a Joke, which is about censorship and comedy. Oh, right. And the, the main thought behind it, and Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think it was your idea, was like, Lenny Bruce would not survive a minute on the modern college campus. Oh, no. And we, we came out with that movie watch this. In, in November of 2015, and your article, That's Not Funny, came out in September 2015. So we... Oh, good. Oh, good. In- I thought you were going to say it came out the next month and that I had skipped the whole movie, and now I'm pretending I haven't seen the movie. Okay, good. <laughs> no, you you scooped us. You scooped us. Uh, and it was it was fascinating because you talk about the National Association for Campus Activities and the sort of comedy that comes out out of that. So if you could wax poetic a little bit about that experience, like how'd you even come up with this as a story? Is that where we're starting? Um, Well, I'm always thinking about, you know, I was born in 1961 in Berkeley. So my whole childhood was the free speech movement. My father was um, he's a lefty, but he was at like, he was born in 1923. So he was like a lefty who had like a good jacket or whatever, but he, you know, and he, and he saw the foibles of the movement and he saw the grandiosity of the movement, but he certainly supported it. And I remember coming home from second grade one day and there were all these like kind of quasi grownups in the living room. And I went away at the other side of the house. And my mom said, Oh, you know, the, the graduate students are striking now. So the seminars in our house. Like, okay. Um, but, but the idea was, and and so whenever I get despairing about life on campus, I do remember that in my childhood, Berkeley, literally, because of the students' valorous actions, um, mostly valorous and in some ways kind of silly, but, how you know, c'est la guerre, um, the, the city, we got invaded twice by troops. It was really, there were just riots all the time. We were the, the really radical thing went on in the public school system. We were the first school system to integrate without a court order in the country. And that happened in second grade, and we almost got school delayed. And all the, the national media came because it was like a feel-good story. And then um, the Friday before the Monday of the first day of school, the Huey Newton verdict came down. 
And everyone said, oh, they can't go to school. It's going to be riots. And there were riots, but they were kind of like exhausted riots and school did go on. And um, so anyways, I'm just always, always, always interested in the young, you know, and I fully understand it's not my world. I am 60. I hand the keys over, you know, it's their world and they're making a world for themselves. And but as an old person, I'm so I have no. Didn't you just write a piece about how you're an old person now? I did. I did. Yeah. I'm getting all the mileage I can out of this experience. But it <laughs> seems like I don't have to rush to get it all in because it's not going away. But um, so now you get to this age and you're no longer, you're not of in the culture. You're not deeply critiquing the culture. You're kind of like a traveler from an antique land. And you're like, oh, so taking it in this direction. Okay. But what I learned from Berkeley is that the notion that what undergraduates are doing, um, lib extreme liberals will always say, oh, these conservatives, they'll label you a conservative if you question anything going on on campus. And they'll say, oh, you're so silly and provincial that you think what college is, that what happens on colleges is important to the future of the country. And I just think, excuse me, excuse <laughs> me. Like if there's any greater validation that they should all just be closed up unless they're schools of dentistry, as you said before we went on the air, um, that uh, the notion that we have a country or at least a significant percentage of the country thinks what happens on campus has nothing to do with the future and fate of the country is a terrible indictment of what may must be going on on campuses if that's true but of course it's not true and those kids in berkeley that started the free speech movement and and led a lot of other young people around the country they stopped the war in vietnam they saw kids who weren't in college being sent to that war um or escaping through my parents living room to canada and um, and they changed the United States Constitution because they said you can't send us to war without letting us vote on the people who are going to make those decisions. And and so when I see things like that comedy, which is always the province of the young and is always the province of people who shock to see that the young people have these sensibilities was interesting to me. Very interesting to me. Now, that said. I don't think the brightest of the young people are choosing the campus entertainment. I mean, they're not the most, like you don't see the campus musicians there. You don't see like the guy who's got his like outrageous podcast or something. They're nice like student activities kids. So that puts a suppressing thumb on the scale of art, I think, uh, that's, that's school sponsored. But yeah, it's, it seemed really, it's just the whole thing. It's just being an undergraduate seems just really grisly to me. But um, but so that's why I thought about that. You know, what's happening if comedy goes, then what? You know, they came for comedy and I did not say anything. And then they came for little tweet personal essays and it was too late. Before Greg jumps in, a little bit of background on your piece. This National Association for Campus Activities, they host an annual conference where a bunch of comedians come in and try and compete for these very lucrative campus spots. Sometimes can pay up to 2500 bucks per spot. And often you can get three or four schools in a geographic area and do them one after another. So you're, you know, clocking out at 10 grand for a week's worth of work. Mm -hmm. And you speak to how the comedy is just so sanitized so that it doesn't offend anyone. And the student activities affairs people really will almost bend over backwards to figure out ways in which a comic comic might offend. And then they'll avoid that comic. And, and the comics know this. So they kind of cater to this audience. They're gone are the days where you're, have the smoky room at the bottom of the student union, you know, right. open mic night with the transgressive comedy. Uh, I, I believe I remember call you talking to Yasha Monk over at the Persuasion podcast mm -hmm. about like the days, the Berkeley basement where they screen uh, pornography, for example. Oh, yeah. And the free speech and, movement they had when they took over Sproul Hall with Mario Savia, that great movement. One of the things they did in the famous Sproul Hall was in the basement, they played gay pornography, which was just. I, in 1964, the notion that there were people, I'm sure, undergraduates didn't know what homosexuality was. And the notion that it would be that you would see pornography and that that the attitude prevailing in the, you know, um, occupied sprawl hall was, well, don't come in the room if you don't want it. You know, you don't have to see gay pornography. This is a huge administration building and that we can see and listen to and discuss anything, anything. Um, that is, that's a kind of expression that's not a physical action or that's not taking something away from someone else. So 
it all, um, so I'm always thinking about that. And But it's funny when you mention these pieces, I, uh, instead of thinking of the content of them, I'm thinking of like the war stories of getting them published. So I'm trying <laughs> to like, you're like this, is the right, this is where we're starting. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like the main dialogue in my head is like, oh God. And then the other's like, what is that piece even about? But um, there was a, a notorious editor who was on his way out who caused me problems there, but it gives me the edge I have today. Yeah. Oh, and there are just a whole bunch of stuff that I was excited to comment on, on, on in that. One is the idea that um, what happens on campus uh, stays on campus. Um, I call it the Vegas campus delusion. And I'm not sure anybody really believed it, to be honest. But you do sometimes get this sort of like toggling through arguments about why, you know, threats to free speech on campus don't matter um, for the large, larger society. And people would always say, Oh, they're going to change when they hit the real world. And, you know, people like me and Height and Nico and everybody were like, no, they're going to change it. And not necessarily yes. for the for the better. It's their world and they don't know better yet because so many professors have abdicated. Well, I guess probably a, a, a core curriculum. But the main thing is, and I'm sure you guys are the heroes of all, you are the heroes of this and God love you. But I think that uh, most people that are undergraduates, maybe unless they've taken con law class, which I would urge every undergraduate to take. That's the terms of service. Take it. You know, that's what you get with the program here. Um, you can change it. You can fight it. You can accept it. But, you know, just at least know what comes with the onboarding package. Um, but they don't know what free speech is. Nope. They just don't know what it is. And um, and getting back to Berkeley, you know, and we're talking about something that happened 60 years ago was a really important thing. The kids wanted to do something that today's kids would be outraged if they weren't allowed to do it. The whole thing started because, you know, Berkeley in the 50s was a super, super reactionary city, not just a university. It just rapidly became radical. And it started very quickly in the 60s. And there was just a group of kids. All they wanted to do was hand out on campus leaflets about the Young Democrats Club. That's all. And Democrats in California were themselves very square at that time. And the university said, you may not do that. You don't have the right to do it. And the kids said very logically, we are 18 or older, and this is public land. It's owned by the state. You have to let us do it. And the university was like, and then suddenly the university, because it wasn't a case of trying to persuade the university into anything, it was saying a series of related truths that you could not maintain a university and and say you didn't believe those things because they were so evidently true. And now I hear administrators parenting things that if they really believe them, that's just shocking that, that they would believe them. And that if they're just parroting, which I'm sure they are to save their jobs, that too is shocking, I think. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about some of the trouble that you've run into at the um I wonder if you can talk about it at the Atlantic um, saying that, um, you know, you sometimes had issues with editors because I mean, for me, like I have to admit, I, I feel like um, uh, James Bennett, you know, right before his end of his tenure at, New, at the New York times, you know, did something that he did an article that really sounded like an apology for publishing, publishing coddling of the American mind back in 2015. And every okay. time they've been qu quoted in there since they don't mention coddling. And then there was an article about anxiety um, by Kate Julian, who's a friend. Um, that was about accommodation of, of kids, accommodating ch children's anxiety makes it worse. And I'm like, also known as, um, and sh it, it just, I, I kind of almost get the impression that, that the Atlantic, well, I, I doubt the Atlantic would publish something. I, I'm not sure they'd publish something like that, uh, now. And I, they and I would, like I will just give you the open and shut on that. Oh, great. On that particular article, uh, the editor who gave me the trouble was James Bennett. And I think he's, um, well, I don't know. It was a huge deal. And then there was another huge deal between him and me about Wesleyan University. And I felt that what they had done to a female student was extremely, extremely ugly. Tell, what, what happened there? Tell, tell us that story. I was writing a piece about the problems of campus fraternities and I was upholding freedom of, I was explaining freedom of association and why it, you have it at some places and why you don't and why it's hard to get rid of it, these schools things someplace. But I wanted to, this was before the big Rolling Stone disaster when they had a cover story that turned out to be like an obvious hoax. But I thought I want to cover a rape, but I want it to be a rape that came with a criminal trial. I don't want there to be any question of she said this 
And well, it's one of those cases, you know, I wanted a verdict and I wanted a prison sentence and I got one and about, and I wasn't looking at Wesleyan. I was just like, let me find a college with it. So then I can show you how the fraternities chopper into these situations. And it was at Wesleyan. And so I wrote this piece. It's still, it's called the dark power of fraternities. It's a very still red piece. Um, And it had, um, it had the first half was all this other stuff. And then the second half was, on this case, it, Wesleyan and showing what can happen and um, with the fraternities and with the college and how they serve one another. And so I'm like, this is a damn good piece. And I sent it in and like a month went by. And then I got this very formal email from someone at the magazine saying James Bennett's father had once been the president of Wesleyan University. And he's saying, you can't run this piece. Wow. That's, that's, Greg James was your editor on Coddling, right? Um, he was the editor in chief at the time. Our editor was actually Don Peck. Oh, uh, oh he's very smart, very smart. Yeah. yeah uh, but wait, I'm wait. just going to say, I want to say under Jeff Goldberg, that would never, ever happen. Jeff, anything you see in the Atlantic that sort of holds a line to the things that people interested in free speech or diverse opinion, anything you see that's in there is because Jeff has fought for that and said it's going in and that as long as he's the editor, we're not doing these things. Yeah. So I and, and you're right. You know, the the uh, overall, I think the Atlantic has really distinguished itself for being it, the 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 biggest, the highest praise I give to or organizations or magazines or or anything these days is simply to use the word serious. You know, like mm-hmm. that. I think they're seriously trying to take take things um, from from nuanced take nuanced takes on stuff. And and your own writing. I mean, it, it was a pleasure to kind of go through um, a, a lot of your past stuff. Everything from your great piece on Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, which got oh yeah, thanks. Well, you know, and. That was just a challenging piece. You can imagine the powers for allied against me. Before I <laughs> big big Rudolph was trying to shut you down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> big Rudolph was having none of it. And now they have, you guys are young, so you know this. They, they have that horrible thing called Elf on a Shelf, which is like this little surveillance elf. And he's always watching you and reporting into the North Pole. And I'm like, did Edward Snowden teach us nothing? Like we're training our kids from the earliest age that Elf on a Shelf is monitoring their behavior for their presence. So oh, and I, and I didn't get to finish the range because I feel like listeners are going to be oh, like, sorry, so sorry, the hard hitting thing you mentioned I, was I, the Rudolph piece. Yes, okay. Well, but also about, um, you know, uh, about Lysol abortions in, in the 50s and 60s, which was, was utter, like incredibly powerful. Um, and to, calling human resources to task, you know, so, like, being involved in the... Um, uh, after the Me Too movement, going to uh, conferences of human resources, uh, people saying like, well, why does this keep happening? Meanwhile, I've been a little critical of HR uh, because what's happened in, from a very different direction, because uh, we have the situation where people graduating from particularly elite colleges have had intermediated experiences from K through 12, and then also in higher ed through a variety of different things. Um, one of the things that we're, Hyde and I are being told is that people uh, from corporations all over the country is that people are going to HR, not uh, for sexual harassment, but for just any kind of everyday abrasion between them and other employees. It could be as simple as a disagreement. Um, and it was it was very helpful for me to remember that it's like, right, and, and there, is a, there is a very serious job that they should be doing. Um, and Although feel- they don't do it that well, that serious right. job. And... Um, and the whole scam of HR, you go to these conferences and they're kind of giving you like, oh, they're, they're kind of philosophical ideas about people and how to treat one another. The whole thing is indemnifying the company against lawsuits. That is the entire thing. And so they dress it up in this idea that for some reason in America's corporations, like if you actually have such high-minded people, like put them up in the C-suite for God's sakes. Like what do you, you know, siloing these people over in um, HR, but they're, they're not high. I mean, they might, someone might be, but they are not there really to help anyone. And you're always better off with a union because a union's not going to like give you Disneyland passes one day and then eliminate your, your division the next day, you know? So, but yes, to the extent that there's anything to do and to the extent that anyone's listening, whoever has a problem that is sexually harassed, you need to call a lawyer first because they'll give you the advice and they'll take your case probably if it's a good case. Oh, this is a sad state of America. Let's let's move on. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I was going to ask on the topic of um, that's not funny, your take on the Chappelle situation, if you follow oh, yeah. that at all. Of course, I watched it right away. He's a genius. 
it's interesting because I had very strong opinions one way. And then about a week later, sort of saying that I saw great worth in what he's saying. And I still do think that I have to see things that have great worth. But in a park in LA, I just was at a, a volunteer resources thing. And there was a kid under a tree. He was just at the park. And my son stayed behind and spoke with this kid. And this kid, you know, it's a trans kid. And he's from the Midwest. And his parents have rejected him, you know, and there's really nowhere else for him to go. And then he said to my kid, and my, he's staying at, I won't reveal, a, kind of a well-known shelter. Um, he's, he's 18, I think. And my, um, then he said to my son, my son was like, well, I know this place and this place and this place. Come to, my son works at a nonprofit. Come, come there and we'll figure this out for you. And then the kid said, and this broke my heart. He said, but I have to tell you I'm a Christian. And I know most Christian places won't take me. And it just so happens my son is a Christian. Um, so, but I just thought, you know, I thought this trans issue, it's easy to take it in a lot of different ways. But I thought, you know what, we are in a country where there are these kids and their parents don't want them anymore and they don't know where to go. And they come to, in a way, the worst place you can come to, which is Hollywood. But so that really, that was one of those real world experiences that really softens your heart and says maybe your heart needs to lead here a bit. But I think Chappelle had profound moments in that that I think would have very much helped a kid like that and will help a kid like that. Because the great line in the show was when his trans friend is yelling up at him to the audience and heckling him. And and Chappelle says, uh, you know, you know, I believe you. And she said, I don't need you to believe me. I need you to understand I'm having a human experience. And Chappelle says, I can do that because it takes one to know one. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is going to be so profound. And I, and and I thought later after this kid's experience with this kid, that kid's parents, if they heard something like that, like, you don't have to believe everything about gender ideology. You don't have to know a whole lexicon of new terms. You don't have to understand. You don't have to believe anything. You just have to understand that your child remains a human and we're all humans together. And then I think that he, you know, the most outrageous or cruel or unnecessary joke, I assume, would be the one where he's talking about sort of whose vagina is legitimate and whose isn't. But when you look at that line in relation to the ending line about all you have to know is it's a human experience, it's almost saying all that other stuff is irrelevant. Yeah. And I and I thought, oh, this is this is so powerful. And this is because what I want to say to the people protesting at Netflix not every trans person in America lives in Hollywood. You know, some of them live in really small towns, in really rural places, and really have no support at all, and have parents who don't, who are so far away from entering into this conversation on the level you demand that they enter into it. Um, and I thought, you know, to have someone of his power, his coolness, his rhetorical, ability. I mean, he's just a genius. And just being, <laughs> being a genius is a real thing. I've known some, you know, I can't say uh, it takes one to know one because I'm not one, but I've known, I don't know him obviously personally, but I know artists who are clearly geniuses. I've known people who are geniuses, kind of a rough road for a lot of them, but um, he, he's someone of such stature and power that I could see all around the country. I could imagine mothers and fathers and brothers and aunts and uncles going, oh, that's all I need to do is just, I don't have to believe anything. I just have to acknowledge this as a human experience. And I have a feeling that, I think that I haven't looked lately, but I remember on Rotten Tomatoes until recently, it was still like 90, like people were liking it and, and everyone said, oh, this is a sign of trans hatred. I'm not sure about that at all. Well, we ended up making a mistake when my wife and I uh, watched it. We would, you know, we had to break it into a chunk, and so we decided to watch the next twenty minutes, like the next day, the, oh, or yeah. the final twenty minutes. And I told this to Nico, and he's like, "That's the whole. That's what makes it all make sense." And right. so, I, you know, we left the first forty with a little bit of a sour taste in our mouth. You know, it's like, eh, well, my, you know, I, cheap, I'm, cheap, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, when you see the last twenty minutes, you're like, 
oh, oh, actually that was, this is constructed incredibly well. And so for people who might be, who might've listened to part of it, and I know a lot of friends who are like, I, could, I couldn't get through it. I was only 20 minutes in. It's like, you really got to watch it, you know, watch it all the way through. And the whole sort of um, what you're talking about, like understanding people's humanity, this is what Haidt and I talk about in Coddling the American Mind. Common humanity identity politics um, is great on so many different levels. Remembering that these are people, they're they're just like you in a variety of different ways, um, and in in most ways really. Um, but uh, and but you share so many things in common. And one of the things that happens on campus, um, partially because, and that when I'm feeling uncharitable about it, um, I basically say that you know some of these departments seem to um, come into existence with this idea that all life is politics, you know, so therefore they act that way in, in, yeah. in everyday life. Uh, and therefore everything's an argument. It's all about coming up with the argument that nobody can really refute. And that right. leads to um, a priority on sort of like arguments that will always win in dorm rooms in, in colleges and right. in classrooms in colleges. And those kind of arguments are common enemy identity politics. Um, yes, which, yes. Which, isn't, which can feel good in the short run, but I don't think, but, but ultimately I think it does so much more harm than good, even for the people you're trying to help. Of course, because as Woody Allen, God love him wherever he may be, or not love him. Do well. God does his job. God is. Yeah, he's still funny. <laughs> yes, he's so funny. And, I, <laughs> and I'm sure that whatever God's relationship to Woody Allen is not going to be changed by my opinion. But um, friends come and go. Enemies accumulate. So by the time you've like separated yourself out into so many different finely tuned identities and oppose yourself to so many other people, you might start. Um, I was talking to a teacher at a school, and they teach Catcher in the Rye. And there's a very strong movement of some of the teachers to say that the whole teaching should be about his white privilege. And I thought that would be kind of a boring lesson because it's not really, you know, it's, it's, it's like boring. lesson begins on the first page. Like he's at a prep school. His parents are rich. They live in the Upper East Side. Like this is about a certain social class. We can all identify it. But if that argument wins this year in that, in that series or that what do you call it, sequence, um, you're telling every white kid in there that they don't have any humanity, that even if their brother died and even if they're brokenhearted and even if they're reaching out for help and having to transfer from school to school because they keep you know, bottoming out, and even if a teacher makes a really ugly pass at them when they thought they had safe harbor at his apartment, none of that matters. You're not a human being. You're this, and you're only that. And and there's a lot of teachers with vengeance on their mind in K through 12. A lot of teachers with vengeance on their mind. So it's sorrowful to me. But it was sorrowful to me when they ran that Hall campaign about beloved. Amazing Wait, book. A, a 12th grader, and he was in AP. So I could definitely grant, as I said in a wickedly funny way on Mar. You know, not all kids are ready for the AP because it's not just that it's it's not 12th grade English honors. It's truly speaking a college course. And you're going to encounter texts you read in college. And yeah, Beloved is an incredibly, you know, it's about someone saying she'd rather kill her children than take them back into slavery. So it's not, but then this woman going like, and then my son had a nightmare. It's like, lady, your kid's 18, like cut the cord, you know, like my, my family was under for like a year. We were under the complete, oh, let me turn that off. Oh, there's one of my kids trying to get in. Go away, kid. Um, <laughs> <Sit outside. laughs> it's my me time. It's my me time. But um, we lived under the reign of something called Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase. I still haven't watched it because it's like the ultimate evil is to be found in Scooby because my son Patrick's not, is just terrified by it. So yes, when your kid's five, you can come. You can come to your mom and you say, "I'm having nightmares from this artist art that I experienced." When you're 18, like there's kids in Iraq that are 18, you know, they don't go to their mom, you know. So the whole thing was very strange. And and I've taught to 10th graders. I've taught, I've taught the Bluest Eye, which is a Morrison book, which has it, you know, very hard scenes in it. And to eighth graders, uh, I know why the Cage Bird Sings, which is my Angelou. Kids can handle a lot and kids are, feel a lot of respect when you say, you know, I know that we are all too mature to have a problem with what's going to be in this book or to make fun of it or to laugh about it or to think it's something to joke about. 
but I want to tell you now what it is because I know we I know you're you're in the eighth grade now and you can handle it. Kids eat that up, and then they get exposed to these great books, but then mixed. That's why I just get rid of me, you know, cancel me out, get rid of me. I keep trying because by the same token, because what I want to say is no one should ever set the English department curriculum except the English teachers. But then they seem to be a ship of fools themselves, so many of them. And they, and they're, I cannot tell you, like in this huge curriculum overnight changes in the independent school world, ninth and 10th graders being given young adult novels. These kids can read Baldwin. They are ninth and 10th graders at independent schools. They, they rock, their reading comprehension is uniformly high. They're interested in this material. Um, they could read the fire next. They could read a lot of really great things. And instead, the teachers' committees are like, well, here's a book, you know, it's, a ch it's like a chapter book, and they're putting it in. So I have no, I have no faith in anything at all, <laughs> except, I don't know. So anyway, that's very bleak, I guess. But well, Public K through 12, like, that's one of the things that, um, you know, we wrote like a 5,000 word piece trying to sort of like explain around through all these CRT laws. And, you know, they're always unconstitutional as applied to higher education. Um, they're, uh, they're probably not unconstitutional, a lot of cases as applied to um, K through 12, if, if it's public, but that's partially because the state has some role. It doesn't mean they're wise, though, or well constructed. And, and it's been it, it you, you know, you're saying the right thing when you get dragged by both right and left. Um, yes, in, uh, yes, exactly. And uh, that's yeah, when it, you're winning. Yes. Well, yeah. as I told my, my I was telling someone the other day, I said, um, I was telling my nephew, about some, someone to put a really horrible comment about me on Twitter. And I, I'm usually pretty stainless steel to Twitter, but for some reason I just had like my, I didn't even have a membrane between me and this ridiculous comment. And I said to him like, you know, Spence, if I want to feel like shit, I have professionals on call 24 seven. I don't need amateur hour on the Twitter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. The, the controversy with Chappelle obviously caused a lot of rancor internal at Netflix. And in that sense, it's it's kind of parallel to at least what I've been hearing happening at newsrooms about the publication of pieces. We know, you know, James Bennett bringing it back with him and the Tom Cotton op-ed, you know, Barry Weiss left, uh, Andrew Sullivan left New York Magazine. I was talking to another writer at an unnamed publication last week who is looking to leave because he just can't handle it anymore. Are you hearing from these writers as well? Do you feel like, the, and I know you work you know, in commentary and you're probably not in a newsroom, but the the internal politics of some of these you know, Here's prominent the thing outlets. about free speech that's in the, in, in the region of not our grand rights or natural rights or anything, but in, in, again, the human heart. The minute there's something that you can't hear about, the minute there's something, you just remember when you were a little kid and the grownups are talking and you're just walking through for a snack and everybody falls silent and they're kind of looking like, we're not going to say it. You're like, what the hell are they talking about? You just, you are going to make it your mission to find out, you know, maybe it's just some crime they don't want kids to know about. But the minute someone says, you can't know this, you can't hear this, um, then you create secret a secret knowledge. And then people want to know what the secret knowledge is. And what I always say about Chris Rufo with the critical race theory is the times hate him, but the times created him. The times created him because these things were popping up all over the country in schools, in workplaces, in municipal governments. People were sending in to various, I can tell you, news organizations. I'll just say without even politicizing it, extremely newsworthy policy changes. And they were coalescing at enough places around enough issues that they were absolutely newsworthy. And the Times was going to just ignore it and ignore it and ignore it. And they thought they could crush the truth because this was just one man with an unaffiliated. I mean, I think he has some post at the Manhattan Institute, but he's not in the newsroom anywhere. And they thought we'll crush him because with, 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 by ignoring him. But people want the truth. People crave it. People are like, oh, I do sense, because I heard something weird's going on at my library in town, but I wonder what's going on there. And so now the New York Times, I will really lay a lot of the blame there. Chris, whom I admire extremely, I admire him. 
because, and I think I send him $10 a month. God, I hope it's being spent wisely. Um, because I want all the news that's fit to print. I want the news. I subscribe to the stupid New York Times, the great cooking section, whatever. Melissa Clark, the sheet pan recipes, keeping it alive. But I want to know the truth. And I just want to go on his website and I want to see the documents. And because the left tried to ignore it, Chris Rufo has set the terms of the debate. That's how stupid the left is. The left, oh, we can just cancel it out by saying it's not critical race theory. They have allowed it to become the number one talking point. And it's an unwinnable argument. It's a capacious theory. You're never going to be able to say it is or it isn't anything. Um, but if the Times had simply, when I guarantee you they've been flooded with these kind of documents for a year and a half or two years, if they had written reported stories, there, you know, Chris Rufo would be making travel documentaries and damn good travel documentaries. Nico, I, I, I really have to have to talk, say something here that, that is not going to surprise you. So, you know, <laughs> I, I came from specializing in First Amendment law, um, so much so that FIRE actually found me and I became the first legal director of FIRE. Um, I was an intern at the ACLU. Like, this is, this is why I went to law school. And, uh, but like a lot of people, it was being a student journalist that got me really radicalized about freedom of speech because you realize how fragile it is under those circumstances, particularly when you're an editor. Um, and, you know, I'm left-leaning still, um, you know, more so back then. And, you know, when I started... There was so many stereotypes, it, like the stereotypes about how bad the culture war was, was about as bad as the culture war actually is now. And I was usually yeah. like, no, no, this is exactly That'll right. never happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and generally, like my experiences with a lot of the media was actually pretty positive. Um, my experience with even the conservative media was pretty positive, with some exceptions. Um, but the only one that acted exactly like everybody warned me it would was actually the New York Times. And and I was a Huffington Post writer for 10 years. This is why I was a Huffington Post writer for 10 years. In 2005, um, the national uh, accrediting body of, um, uh, of education schools, um, uh, it became public due to fire largely, um, that they had a uh, commitment to social justice requirement um, as part of their evaluative criteria um, that that essentially, and this, I think it was passed initially in like 2002 or 2003, which basically meant almost uh, some, all of the most influential education schools would actually literally have to do a political litmus test. We were required to before someone could graduate from ed school. Um, and I wrote what I thought was a really <laughs> thoughtful piece about this. Um, and I sent it to the New York Times and I was always, you know, in the arguments with the conservatives, you know, it's like, I'm going to, and then I got it in and I was like, in your face, you know, because fire actually has people who vote for different people working the same way. Right. And I got it accepted in, wow. in 2006. And it turned out the chief editor was away. And when the chief editor came back, um, suddenly they're like, oh, I, I, we, we probably can't do this for, I don't know, like a long time. And I asked like, I don't know, maybe nine months, you know, and, <laughs> and, and this was, and, and this was the hellish person. job. I think of all hellish jobs. Well, Dennis Miller's famous for saying that the second worst job in America is crack whore and the worst job is assistant crack whore. <laughs> but I am going to say that the worst job in America is when you are the mid-level flunky editor who yeah. has to find the lie to tell the writer of why it's not actually going to run. Yeah. And so they, they're like, well, you know, there won't be any room for nine months. Yeah. <laughs> the midterm elections will really be filling up the page. You don't have the pages online, dumbass. You know, it's like, that is one of, I think, maybe the worst job. And, and then they couldn't even, the, the, um, then uh, she couldn't even promise me in six months, nine months. The editor was who was who, who had to say no to me, who originally said yes, was so disgusted by that that when he moved on to this new publication called the Huffington Post, he immediately gave me gave me a spot there. But we right. were trying for, we still try to this day, we would send every press release at fire, oftentimes involving liberals getting in trouble um, too, but also conservatives, also, you know, the mid range of, of just apolitical stuff um, and nothing. We would get almost no coverage, uh, you know, for this. And you're absolutely right. Like if it's something that um. Uh, uh, he's a scholar um, who wrote Once in Future Liberal. Um, at, at oh, Mark Lilla. 
Mark Lilla. Um, and one of the things he always says at the end is like, you know, um, MSNBC, you know, like if you paid attention to this, you could solve it. And this is right. this is a real thorn, you know, even just from a political calculus, it's bad mm -hmm. to have this as an issue that can be brought up. But, you know, it just it, it. But so, yeah, that's how The New York Times turned me into a Huffington Post writer. Yeah, I mean, the coverage of our issues in particular seems to be driven by the politics of the speech we're defending. For example, the yeah. Chronicle of Higher Education, I actually went they were running so many stories about the Nicole Hannah-Jones controversy at UNC that I went and counted how many they had written. They had published and I get their newsletter every morning. I think they had published something like 30 stories in their newsletter. Some of them repeats, but they put them back in the newsletter in like a 35 day period, something absurd like that. Right. And they're doing the same thing with the Florida situation as well. Both cases that fire has taken on yeah. that are abhorrent uh, restrictions that, on academic reasons, freedom. But I'd say on the grand scale of badness that we've seen in our, maybe like a six or a seven, you know, like, right. like so it was amazing. It's like, cause you like the politics of this. What about the other thousand cases, you know, anyway? Yeah. So it's it, the, the well, that's where we all have to think, you know, as white people, um, you know, I do hear this, this very loud, um, comment that, um, you white professional class Americans, you've had your hand on the throat of real free speech in the terms of dissemination, you know, because, in, you know, if you, if you, everybody at the times, you know, was white mostly for a long time, for a long time, they were almost all men. Even in my own lifetime, I've, I, like I was going back and looking at how they covered things. And, and, and so to have someone like Hannah Nicole Jones, who's so deeply admired, to have her not get, because at first I was like, well, why would any first year professor got the, get tenure? But I think there's something about that particular position. Yeah, the previous, the, it's like professors of practice or whatever, they would get tenure. The previous two, I think, had also not had an academic background and got tenure. So it was, it was a sort yeah. of disparate treatment situation here. And I know novelists who even have tenure in creative writing. I think they do, because they should really be fired if they don't. But, um, but so... I can see a sense of speech is how we change the country. And you guys had all the speech for a long time. And now we're going to get the speech. People of not white, cisgendered, male, we're going to use this. But, and so I don't know. I, I, I don't oh, but know. Caitlin, well, one thing I do want to be really clear about this is we have cases involving minority uh, professors. Oh, I know. Oh, I don't mean you. Oh, I know. Time. I'm always so happy. And when I see them, I'm like, oh, fire should only do these cases in a sense, you know, because. But I, I totally know. But we've been sending totally press know. releases, you, you know, like so often, and particularly when it's a case that's not sexy in the sense that it doesn't. And this is the funny thing, Caitlin. Um, you know, we we cover all across, and people all across the spectrum get in trouble when we when we have a perfectly sort of like political correctness run amok case. Um, you know, that gets picked up usually by Fox News. Um, and weirdly, um, when the New York Times started picking up our cases a little bit better around 2013, 2014, because they were getting more intense. Um, they, th that, that will sometimes get a little bit of coverage in the New York times too. Um, uh, if it's about left wingers getting in trouble that sometimes maybe, maybe, maybe gets picked up. Um, we, we were lucky to get a, a Babson university when Ashin uh, Fetzi was fired, um, for uh, allegedly like advising the Ayatollah, you know, to attack the Kardashian residents <laughs> in a, and obviously kidding. I mean, he actually mentioned the Kardashian residents and they claimed that, oh my God, well, he, this was, um, advice, like saying like, uh, it was about the cultural uh, attacking cultural sites in Iran. Mm -hmm. Like Trump had been saying, oh, we're going to attack cultural sites in Iran. And this oh, professor right. cracked a joke saying, well, attack our cultural sites. I don't know what they are. Maybe like the Kardashian residents. Obviously, oh, right. dope. And this got picked up by conservative media as if this guy was seriously advising Iran on, on who to attack. Those might get picked up a little bit. The Babson one did get picked up by the Times, and we appreciate that. But there's this big middle of cases that, and oftentimes involving minority students, oftentimes, and here and here's one, one of the biggest divides, often involving poorer students. Um, yes. In cases that aren't don't don't have that kind of culture war resonance, yes. um, oftentimes young young poor minority students, and they don't get they they, they get diddly squat for for um uh, coverage. 
Oh, I completely, I completely, I, I, I didn't at all mean to, to in any way, but you guys are kind of the only ones that are holding any kind of a line oh, no, here. I, I, I didn't take it that way. I just yeah. wanted to be very clear that, that, that the, particularly um, so many of our biggest cases, you know, like the Haskell, um, uh, the, the Haskell case that we have. Oh, the other thing is they have preference for, if it happens at Harvard and Yale, it's really oh, yes. important if it yes. happens at a community college, not so much. Yeah, it's, it's yes, also. that is true. Caitlin, I don't think it's, it's also just about giving, um, people who historically haven't had their voices represented a voice, those voices also need to be paired with the right political opinion. For example, we have this case at Emerson outside of Boston right now, a TPUSA group, very polarizing group, what have you. They still have free speech rights, right? They were handing out stickers called that said China's kind of sus on it, which is, you know, teenager slang for suspicious. They were brought up on um, national origin discrimination charges at Emerson because they were criticizing the Chinese government. Now, of course, Emerson initially claimed that this was critical of Chinese people, but eventually in its finding report, acknowledged this whole campaign was criticism of China. But they said, despite that, we are still finding you guilty of national origin discrimination and harassment because of anti-Asian hate uh, being on the rise in the country, driven in large part by the COVID epidemic. So any criticism of China can drive, uh, you know, increase in hate crimes, whatnot. And therefore, you're still guilty of this. The the coup d'etat, of course, is the fact that one of the leaders of the TPUSA group is Chinese. Is, yes, Chinese American. Well, okay. not, no, <laughs> Sing- Singaporean, but their their okay. basis is all. It's like it's it's you know anti Asian. So it's 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 not that they're trying to give these students a voice. It's that it needs to be paired with the right political opinion, yes. of course. So, and, and God forbid that they should should wrestle on that at administrative level with maybe it is suspicious to have slave labor. Maybe yes. it is suspicious to have people in concentration camps. Leaders. I mean, yeah, the, the thing that you always think about, what's the thing that we're going to look back on and be super ashamed about in, mm-hmm. in the future? And for a long time, you know, and I think there, there's been some work towards this. I always thought that uh, sexual assault in prison, prison rape was one of those right. things that we would look back and be like, what? Why didn't we take this more seriously? But the thing that we're that our our grandkids are going to be pointing at us saying it's like Hong Kong Uyghurs, like what? Why didn't you say anything? Well, and even right now in China, there's a famous tennis star Peng uh, Shuai. I can't. I don't, I'm going to butcher her last name. Who just critic? Who uh, posted on Twitter about being sexually assaulted by the former vice premier, who's good friends with uh, Xi Jinping. And she's been dis- she, she's been missing since November, I think, second. Oh yes. Nobody yes, knows yes. where she is. There was some sort of email that was sent out by China, claiming to be her, saying she's safe and sound, and I'm just <laughs> taking time for myself. But you can see the type cursor on it. Like if you're receiving this email, you're not going to. So you know she disappeared. Then there's Leah Jabot, who won the Nobel Prize in I think like 2009, who just wanted to put out a document appealing to democratic principles, and he was locked up in prison and died in prison. His wife uh, was, um, and I think still is on house arrest. I mean, part of when I think about the problem, free speech problems in America, I'm like, you could be in China. But even in America, China is having influence over what we can and can't say on our campuses. Just em- Emerson is- <laughs> Right, it's proving point. the point of the sus. <laughs> it yes. is sus now at Emerson. But- you know, I kind of went down as an American. I was like, what the hell is going on? Why are we trading with China? I understand that we can't invade China, I guess. I mean, foreign policy being what it is. Although if there was ever a cause, uh, liberating concentration camps would be near the top of the list. Oh, and I I think it will be a cause in 30 years. I think in much the same way, (laughs) the the, the people ignored what was happening with the Jews in Germany. You know, I think- And now- It'll come to be one of those things, like the great silence. Well, China I, just, oh, I just want to say, I was talking to somebody about that whole thing, the concentration camps in China, and I said, it's always a mistake to talk to a really smart person who also knows things because it's so disillusioning. <laughs> oh, I hate and that. And I said, it's just the worst. <laughs> um, absolutely horrible thing to happen. And I said, what can we do? What can I as a citizen do to let China know this is not okay? And he said, oh, call your state government and say no more um, solar heating panels from China. They're all made by slave labor. Oh, now I'm going to pit myself against the environmentalists of California. I got so much life to live. I don't, you know, it's just, everything is so connected. And so what we need is a code and we have a code 
but people are trying to rip up the code is what I think is happening. When you say code, what do you mean? Code, code, what code do you mean? I mean, a code of, well, that's, you know, for, foreign policy is something different, but um, we have a code where we're allowed to talk about anything and we could say, you know, I'm an Emerson student and I don't like these kids who put those stickers out. I know those kids, they're a bunch of jerks. But I think it's extremely wrong that China transparently has slave labor right now. I don't think that says anything about most actual Chinese people in China or any Chinese Americans or Asian Americans, but it is extremely wrong. And we should all be gathered around to say, you know, if you can um, boycott Israel so from making the like the sparkling water, like so the only thing I think they make is like the sparkling water that's even like at Bed Bath & Beyond, you can't find it. Uh, yeah, soda stream, big fan. Soda yeah. stream, yes. yeah. Um, so don't buy that. And that way you'll protect the Palestinians, which of course is a worthy cause. But but China, we can't say they're sus, you know? Yeah, and we, and, and, Go ahead, Greg. And there is actually, and I read this in, in Vivek Ramaswamy's um, uh, Woke Incorporated, which is, which honestly, give, given his sort of bomb thrower status, I was kind of expecting it to be not that, not, not a very thoughtful book. And even though he does, you know, he, he, he throws his bombs here and there, it actually is a surprisingly thoughtful book about corporatism, it, you know, and about how, and it basically is saying that most of the posturing towards um, wokeness, which, he, which is what he calls it, in corporate America is um, uh, disingenuous, you know. Oh, of um, course. And that that it's just to make a buck. And he, one of the many things I learned is there's actually a word in Chinese to make fun of us for wokeness. Um, oh, okay. I, I, I wouldn't be able to say it correctly. Right, but, but, and better not because if USC has taught us anything, mispronouncing a Chinese word or correctly pronouncing it could be a job killer. Yeah, and, and USD. Um, the uh, we we've seen there was a professor who who um, said something about um, uh, you know Chinese codswaddle or something like that. Um, he said cockswaddle, unfortunately, which is like not really a word, but he was trying to say codswaddle. And we've seen cases um, all over the country where someone will say something about like they'll 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 make a reference jokingly to the Wuhan virus or something like that, mm -hmm. and it and it immediately gets taken up as if that's an intentional racist attack upon Chinese people. And right. sometimes you know the Chinese government. Government, that like they're they're kind of cultivating that because it's kind of like yeah it of looks course. like you guys are completely insane on this on this one issue and it protects us so go go, go at it but that's where I think it must be so disheartening to be when you were just talking about Fox News like like sometimes I'll see a really great thinker and I'll say what the hell is she doing being interviewed there and I know oh no one on the left will even have her on and she wants to talk about her experience and and then Dave Chappelle, I'm like, the hell he is going through is not with Netflix. It's that like people like Laura Ingram are sticking up for him. Like that is a world of hell that I don't think Dave Chappelle ever in a million. Like how can he disavow her and then avow other people? Because we have these like, now I don't even know what the politically correct term is for people that aren't, let's just say they're not deep thinkers. Mm -hmm. And they have a few ideas, oh, they're wrestling like a bone in their mouth. And if they can just say it over loudly enough, they'll get to do all these things and write their bestsellers. Um, but they're horrible representatives for what we're talking about. Like there should be cool, in, you know, kids. I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah, going to be it, very hard for them. I mean, you know, Fox, like I can be critical of it sometimes, but there was a point at which, I mean, actually, this is pretty funny, Caitlin. At first, um, when I first started doing TV, I was on MSNBC as much as I was on Fox, um, which was which was great. Like there was a sense on the left that kind of like, okay, the, these are our embarrassments to us, so we should try to address them ha ha um, hands on. But yeah, it's the, the what, and I was just talking to Charlie Sykes this morning. Um, I, I did I did a, um, a, a podcast a podcast with him. You're a podcasting you know, fool. <laughs> yeah, well, podcasting uh, all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I was, I, my, my joke. My joke is I get paid to pretend I'm an extrovert, um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to have to take a nap after this. But <laughs> the um, but you know he he was writing about this stuff in 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 the he was writing about political correctness and that kind of stuff in the late '80s and early '90s. And there was a whole bunch of people who were writing about this. Now, if you look at the people who are most critical of what's going on in higher ed, we're mostly either left or moderates, you know, with Ben Shapiro as an exception. But like a lot of the more like the more serious critics are actually left leaning people like Alice Dreger and, and me, for that matter. But like it, or um, or considered more moderate, like David French, the. Um, uh, 
And what's amazing about it is people will try to, you know, dismiss us as being conservative. And it's like, no, 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 the conservatives actually made this point in the 80s and 90s and you, you dismiss right. them entirely, almost like they don't exist. So it's part of this really childish way of arguing that if I could figure out what your politics are, I don't have to listen to you anymore. It's a, right. it's a really frustrating heuristic. Well, it's very, yeah, it's very, um, someone, I was talking to a graduate student in a humanities program, a once great humanities program, and he said, it's like they're trying to persuade me of something instead of just, you know, telling me that here's some facts, here's some books, read them, come back, let's discuss. It's like they're saying things that are somewhat implausible to me. And then when I say, oh, wh why is that so? They, they just double down on the, the persuading of this thing. And, but, you know, these college professors, they have got to get their heads in the game because I'm convinced that this decline in college enrollment, it's not just financial. It's not just malaise or despair from the pandemic. I think there are a lot of young people in America who are saying there's nothing really there for me and they're not wrong about that. And I think that we don't want necessarily, and again, I support Chris Rufo 100% with my $10 a month, I literally support him. But it, we sh it is a dangerous and volatile situation for one person to be holding that entire story and to have all the power in it and have it translate into a transparent political power. That's a volatile, that's what the press is for. The New York Times with all of their reporters and their bureaus and their editing, they, are, they have a function. And those things are to be so that there isn't one young person carrying all of this material and probably, um, radicalizing people in bad unintentionally in bad ways along the way so so anyways with college you know all these people who depend on their stupid administrative jobs you know you'll probably be the first low-hanging fruit to go <laughs> the uh i remember greg on the stage with malcolm gladwell and jonathan Haidt talking about his uh his book coddling the american mind and and saying all the stuff that's happening, this is kind of circling <laughs> full circle here to what the point you made at the beginning, Caitlin, which is all the problems we're seeing on campus right now, they're coming to an HR department near you. Yes. Uh, so invest in HR companies if you can. I actually looked into it. There are not many HR companies to invest in. Uh, oh, a publicly right. traded one. in-house, yes. I, yeah. I, I should have taken my own advice. I, they, they, yes. The stocks have gone up a lot. <laughs> but the, you know, and I think you're speaking to Chris Rufo, who's seen this in you know education and in corporations. Just anecdotally, I talked to my um, father-in-law. He's in the medical profession. He says, I'm getting this forced down my throat uh, in the medical profession as well. And I just had recently texted with him about a guidance document that the American Medical Association put out about um, how to talk about disequities in the healthcare system, you know, inequities in the healthcare system. It's, and it's, it has this chart of what the conventional language is and what the revision. Oh, these are be. always good. Okay. Yeah, and the conventional language, for example, Native Americans have the highest mortality rates in the United States. The revision is dispossessed by the government of their land and culture. Native Americans have the highest mortality rates in the United States. Uh, low in, conventional, low-income people have the highest level of coronary artery disease in the United States. That's the conventional language. Their proposed revised language is people underpaid and forced into poverty as a result of banking policies, real estate developers gentrifying neighborhoods, and corporations weakening the power of labor movements, among others, have the highest level of coronary artery disease in the United States. I shit you not, this is an actual document oh, I've from the American Medical I Association. And it's I just, everywhere. You know, as someone who has stage four cancer, I don't want these people spending a minute on their stupid speech code. Back in the lab, find more cures for cancer. Do not write your little private language that is just ridiculous. And you can't figure out, you can't, it's like we've come to a point where the physician doesn't know which one is a man and which one is a woman. Like, I just don't, I don't know what, what's going to happen to American medicine if we really are going to falter, you, you know, to these these ridiculous ridiculous codes and what does it really do you know i had this in a piece i wrote what does it do when you have kids in a private school and you have to have those land acknowledgments that the land was whatever owned by certain tribes and that's very interesting to me of course but if you're going to put it in a kid's syllabi then you say and therefore we have we are paying rent to the tribe 
or therefore we do this. We have this arrangement. We are ma- we are repairing our historical wrong. But to just lay it out there that you know you are sitting on land that was stolen as part of the California genocide and you can't do anything about it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where it all ends. Yeah, it out. seems like just a genuflection without you know, yeah. for the sake of it. Since I did want to bring this up at some point, um, we just got going on talking about so many different things. Yet you're you've been very open about your health. Um, the uh, definitely, you know, like I, I being open about my mental health stuff is the thing that led to coddling the American mind. The the um, but 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 with you, um, you know, I learned a lot about from reading reading one. We both have two boys, and and the fact that you know when it absolutely broke my heart when you wrote about um, you know when your kids were graduating from kindergarten or something like that, mm, and you yeah. you thought that might be the last the last graduation mm. you get to go to preschool. Can you, can you tell us about um and oh my god um can you tell us about uh you know what you like. Do you think that being face, having facing your own mortality is one of the reasons why you're so brave as a writer? I mean, what have you learned from this experience? This scary. I don't think I. People always say I'm brave, but I don't think there's a lot of. I mean, I'm just an essayist. It's not as though I could be. You know, if I do eventually get canceled, I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't have a big career if I wrote the kind of things I'm supposed to write because I'm not. Wouldn't be any good at it. You know. Women's magazines were always up for when listeners. They, you've been living with cancer for twenty years. Just context yes, for listeners. Yes, that's right. So I always claimed that I would not be doing any learning or growing through having cancer, and but it's I can't. And whenever someone says it, because I know a lot of people with cancer, obviously, like they often die soon after. Not I'm not being superstitious. It's just when you get to this much equanimity with the disease, there can be a sense you're not fighting it anymore medically. But um. You know, things things don't live forever. Things are born and they grow and they age and they die. And um and that's okay. That's okay. That's how I feel about it. That one of the more powerful books I've ever read was Christopher Hitchens Mortality. I don't know if you've mm, ever read that. Of course, um, yeah. Uh he didn't uh not live very long after his cancer diagnosis and the book, yeah. you know, doing Christopher Hitchens, you know, what he did, he decided he was going to write about a book about his experience. And it's very sad because at the end of the book, it just cuts off and you, all you get yeah. out of the rest of his notes because he didn't live to finish the book. I'm a, as listeners know, a big Christopher Hitchens fan. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I recommend that book. And um, what's, the, what's the uh, other book? I can't forget the, um, it'll, it'll come to me. Uh, it's about being kind of a public intellectual and, Letter to a young conservative. Letter, letter to a young contrarian. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> oh right, oh right, oh right, 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 right. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, they're not making public intellectuals like they used to. Um, I got, I got to meet him before he died. Um, and he, and he, he was really excited about fire. And I just, it's one of those oh, things yeah, where I you just kind it. of assumed, oh yeah, I, sh- I should, I should follow up, and you know, and uh, yeah. yeah, he's a. Uh, he in this era of cancel culture or whatever, I think he would be a very interesting voice to hear from. Ed, oh, it, essential, essential. Yes, I mean, he would be taking names. Yeah, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Caitlin, is if you had read Ann Applebaum's piece in the same uh, oh, publication course, that you yeah. write for about cancel yeah. culture and what you. Th- thought of that she calls the cancelers the new puritans greg's always called them the new victorians but uh, yes yes taking it back to our own yes i think that was exactly right Uh, i just thought every word of it was wonderful i thought it was i mean i know her she's just she took some flack for it i remember on twitter which isn't the real world or maybe it is it's not the real i mean my kids are always (laughs) well greg's an apologist for it i read your article Uh, about how you need to quit it and you're somewhat addicted to it I'm really an apologist for it. I, I mean, like my work with Jonathan Heights, extremely critical of it. I just think that I've been able to carve out a, what I call a relatively nice neighborhood um, and that you can talk to really interesting, smart people on it. But do I think it's been highly destructive? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's why there's one period, there's one thing that somebody said, it was just, I had to remind myself, no, this is Twitter. You know, the minute you just put your phone down and you just walk out the door and you take a breath outside and you're like, that's not real. Nothing that's happening in my little computer in my pocket phone 
you know, that's not real. And those people aren't real. And they wouldn't behave that way or say such a thing. And what that person just said about me isn't true. So, but I get, because of my cancer, I only have about two more questions and answers left in me because I get tired. I hope this isn't a super long podcast, is it? No, no, no. We can, okay. we're pretty much ending there. I have one more thing oh, I want yeah. to add. We, we, we can conclude. We, we, we had all sorts of fun going all over the place. But Nico, okay. um, I've talked too much. You, you oh, no, the only, the, this isn't a free speech question. It's just, I know you're a big uh, Californian. You write a lot about California. And I just wanted to get your thoughts about California now. I just left Florida where I was for a week. And they had all these signs up all over Florida says New Yorkers vote Republican or go home. And I was just in Texas too. You saw the similar thing, but for California. Um, mm-hmm. So you hear about all this California flight to these other States. And I, I wanted to get your sense. I of would never leave California. I no, it's not overblown. That's why it just, I told you I moved. I left LA, you know, there, oh, really? that in that city for 35 years, that city is currently closed for renovation as ditto San Francisco. Um, just absolutely terrible things are happening, but there's still great swaths of protected land in California. Anybody who can go to Carmel and go to um, Point Lobos, protect. There's great environmental protections in Northern California. Go to Stinson Beach. You know, it's just a, it's a very exceptional place. It's the most beautiful place in the world. And it's you go to other places and you're like, yeah, this is beautiful. Let me tell you what's in California that's like this but more beautiful. So. Um, but no, California's, um, it's not doing its best. I'm actually writing a piece about California now. That's why I'm kind of stumbling about it. And I went, that's part of why I had that, that recent trip. No, it's sad, but it's still the best. And these Texans, you know, like everybody was like, yeah, we're going to Texas. And then they immediately almost froze to death in their houses. And now they can't get an abortion. So you know, maybe our, you know, creaky old <laughs> infrastructure, at least, you know, I don't know. At least things are still somewhat working because I guess Texas is is just a, a, another land entirely. Yeah. Well, I think we can leave it there, Caitlin. I know you got to run. Um, anything no, you want to plug? Go nap. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and Greg, Greg does too. So I, I gotta oh, yeah, let okay, him go good. as well. <laughs> he's, he's all extroverted himself out. Um, okay, exactly. or introverted himself out. But uh, is anything you want to plug that you're working on right now? I think on Twitter, your handle is what? Caitlin Pacific, right? It's, oh, yes, at Caitlin Pacific. Oh, because my Twitter handle used to be Caitlin Atlantic, which I thought was a pretty nice Twitter handle, and I was very proud of it. And then I tweeted something about a sex worker that was um, actually supportive of her, but used expressed in um, sort of crude, crude terms. Um, blue language blue it was blue so what happened was i get a very long email from a very senior person saying that james bennett has said i can either take down that tweet or i must change my handle from caitlin atlantic and that really burned me up it burned me up to be a woman um doing and then to say like well they pay me so they have the ability to do that. Um, but no, he's not a friend of free speech. He's a friend of James Bennett. Wow. Caitlin Pacific. I didn't actually realize that that, that was it, that was such a um, the origin story there. I didn't I've never told it before. I don't know. You just opened a rich vein. We're breaking news here. Holy yes, cow. Exactly. <laughs> We're breaking news here. But it's, it, it's, it's silly that they would have you take down that tweet. I mean, you're a professional opinion haver. So yes. you think the Atlantic it's Havist, <laughs> Havist, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> All right, grammarian over there. I'm just, I'm totally kidding. I want the the awkwarder the better. Anyway, Caitlin, th- uh, thank you so much for coming on. All I'm, right, I'm a this huge is fan great boy. fun. Okay, fangirling over here. Oh, and Esther the long-eared donkey is even worse in terms of depressingness than uh that than Rudolph, in my opinion. Like that, oh, that story oh, devastated yeah, this, us as kids. Yeah, it's very bad. We're like Esther. Who are those people? Why are they making these Christmas specials of hell? Yes, I know. <laughs> Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, okay. Greg. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. 
Thanks again, and I look forward to talking to you all next time.